Uh, We are going to be in the book of Joshua this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go over to the book of Joshua just after Deuteronomy. Uh, One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is perform weddings. When I was the college pastor at Grace, I performed a lot of weddings. There were summers that because students were getting married left and right, I performed six, seven, eight, nine weddings over the course of a summer. I love weddings. I love being able to see two individual people join together and become one new family. Uh, And over the years, I've made a few observations about the brides and the grooms that I have encountered. Here's what I've noticed is that On the wedding day, if the bride is nervous or stressed about something, typically she's nervous or stressed about the day itself, the the event itself, making sure the flowers are in place, making sure all the bridesmaids and groomsmen are there and her family is in place. She has stress maybe about the reception. She's thinking about that event because she's the one usually in charge of planning it, right? It's on her shoulders. The grooms that I run across, and this is a generalization, uh, they have a whole other set of concerns on their mind. Uh, Rarely do I encounter a groom who's thinking about the details of the event. Instead, usually what I encounter is a groom that has suddenly realized he is about to make a giant lifetime commitment where he will be responsible to love and care for and cherish this woman for the rest of their lives. And it's amazing, like I know he's thought about it before that moment, but suddenly the weight of that reality seems to hit him somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes before the ceremony. So he begins to sweat and he begins to worry. And I know what's going through his mind. He's thinking, I had a betta fish in college and I killed it. It died. So how am I going to take on this level of responsibility? So I've seen all kinds of things happen with grooms. Every so often I have seen them just unable to repeat the vows initially. So you say, repeat after me. I, Bob, take you, Sarah, to be my wedded wife. And they go, I, you're like, Bob, your name is Bob, right? I have seen, uh, I've seen grooms turn white, known them to pass out. I've never seen a bride pass out. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I have seen grooms pass out or have to sit down. I remember one groom in particular about an hour before the ceremony. We couldn't find the guy. Didn't know where he was. We're looking everywhere. Finally, he shows up. He walks into the, uh, into the room where we are with maybe 10 minutes to spare. And he's sweating and he's white as a sheet. And I said, where have you been? And he said, I was in the bathroom throwing up for the last 45 minutes, right? And, and the first thing I thought was, did you brush your teeth? I think I actually asked him that. The terror of that moment, the weight of that moment produced in him a fear. And the fear was this, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I can't cut it as a husband and someday as a dad. Maybe you felt like that at some point in your life. I'm not good enough to do what I know I am called to do, right? I'm not good enough. I remember this feeling very vividly the first time we had a child leaving the hospital with our oldest daughter, right? And they hand you a child and they wave goodbye. And you think that seems really irresponsible of them. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. You've just entrusted me with a person's life and I'm not ready. 
Maybe you've had that feeling of inadequacy. There are things that I am supposed to do that I am not prepared to do. Maybe that feeling runs through your life as a spouse, as a parent. Maybe it runs through your life just as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You say, you know what? I know that I am called to trust Jesus with my life, with my family, to love my spouse, to love my kids, to go into my place of work and be a light for Jesus Christ, that I'm called to do that, and yet I am not adequate for the task. I'm not a good speaker, maybe you think, or I don't know enough about the Bible, or I am not an extrovert, and so I have a hard time gathering people together to tell them about Jesus. Maybe when Chris Thompson shared the announcement about grace for the city, and he said, hey, we're going to have a barbecue on our street, and we're going to invite all of our friends, and we're going to make connections with them so we can tell them about Jesus. You broke out in a cold sweat because you thought, I can't do that. That's not who I am. I think every single one of us at some point in our walk with Jesus Christ has encountered that feeling of, man, I'm not good enough to do what God is asking me to do. If you have ever felt that way, if you feel that way this morning, I think you're going to enjoy the book of Joshua because Joshua was a man who had every reason to question his ability to do what God had asked him to do. Joshua was a man who stood on the verge of a momentous occasion in the life of the nation of Israel. God had said, Joshua, I want you to take these people who have been wandering in the wilderness and I want you to lead them into the land that I promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph and his brothers, to Moses. I want you to lead them into this land. And here's Joshua standing at the border of the promised land, following the greatest leader in the history of the nation of Israel. And I've often thought, I can't imagine that Joshua felt up to the task. Right? And what we'll see with Joshua, though, is this, that Joshua takes all of that fear, all of that inadequacy, And he lays it at the feet of God and he says, if this task is going to be done, if we as a people are going to reflect God like he's called us to reflect him amidst this pagan culture, then we got to trust him. And we have to trust that if God has told us to do something, God will resource us to do it. If God has told us to do something, it's going to be bigger than anything we can do in our own strength. But God will give all the resources to us to do the task. And that's the good news this morning. All right, if God has asked us to reflect Jesus Christ, as sinful as we are, as much as our own personalities get in the way, our own fears get in the way, if God has asked us to reflect Jesus Christ, if God has asked us to make disciples, if God has asked us to live out the fruit of the Spirit, to be people of love, who reflect Jesus. And God says, I am enough to accomplish the task through you. If you've ever felt that sense of inadequacy, Joshua is going to be good news for you and me. Now, before we dive into the book of Joshua, I want to provide for us just a little bit of historical context because it occurs to me when we think about the Old Testament, some of us kind of go, okay, I know there's a lot of people. When you say Joshua, I've heard about Joshua and Jericho and marching around the wall and all that, but I I want to give us a sense of where does Joshua fit? That's going to help us understand what it is he's being called to do. So I want to go backwards for just a minute to give us a little bit of scope of the story of Israel and where Joshua fits. You may remember, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, 
Joshua's ancestor, Abraham, the father of the Israelite people, God had made a covenant with Abraham all the way back around 2100 BC. Now that's an approximate estimation, right? But in Genesis 12, God called Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And he says, Abraham, I want you to leave Ur, right? Abraham was a pagan man in Ur. And he says, Abraham, leave Ur. And I want you to go to the place I'm going to show you. I want you to go to this land. And he defines the land where Abraham is supposed to go. It's essentially what we would call Israel. He says, Abraham, I want you to go there. And I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a lot of descendants upon descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Abraham, that's your calling, right? So Abraham gets up and he moves And for the rest of his life, Abraham kind of wanders around in this region of the promised land. He has some sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob, and another son, Esau. Jacob has 12 sons, right? One of those sons is named Joseph. And you remember, one of Jacob's sons is Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham. And here's the story you'll remember about Joseph. He's the guy that uh, his brothers sold him into slavery, right? A lot of us who have brothers and sisters, we thought about doing that. We didn't actually follow through. Joseph's brothers did it. They sell him into slavery. He finds his way to Egypt. He is in prison in Egypt for a while. He rises through the ranks. He becomes second in command. And eventually all of the family, all of Jacob's family moves to Egypt, right? They all move to Egypt right at the end of Genesis. And that's where we end the book of Genesis. They live the rest of their lives In and around Egypt, they die, and another Pharaoh comes up. It says who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know Jacob, doesn't know them. He makes them slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They're slaves in Egypt, right? And right around 1446 BC, you'll remember Moses leads the people out of Egypt, right? That's the parting of the sea, all of the plagues on the nation of Egypt and on Pharaoh. And, and Moses leads them out. This great leader leads them out. And here's what happens. They, they leave the land. They leave Egypt. They head toward the promised land right as they get to the border of the promised land. You may remember what happens. They send some spies into the land, right? They go in, they say, okay, if we're going to conquer this land that God promised to Abraham, that God promised to our ancestors, we need to know what it's like, right? So some spies go in. That's Numbers 13 and 14. They look around, they come back. There are 12 spies and they all say, look, this is a fantastic land. There's a lot of fruit. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But 10 of the guys say, you know what? We can't do this because the people are too tall. Their cities are, are fortified with walls. There are chariots. We can't do this. And so they begin to instill fear in the hearts of the nation of Israel, except for two guys, two of these spies. Their names were Caleb and Joshua. Right? You remember what Caleb and Joshua say? They're like, no, we should absolutely go take the land. Let's go get your swords. If God has told us to take the land, we can take the land. Right? But the people side with the ten. And so God judges them. For 40 years, they wander in the wilderness and every single person from their generation drops dead in the sand. Except two guys, Joshua and Caleb. And so now we're 40 years on from the Exodus and that's Joshua 1. Moses is dead. Almost all of Joshua's contemporaries are dead. And God says, Joshua, now is the time. You're the guy. So look with me at Joshua chapter one, starting in verse one. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. He says, Joshua, this is the time. This is what you've been waiting for for 40 years. This is what you were waiting for as a people for 400 years. And he gives them this task. And here's what we see right out of the gate. God's tasks are bigger than our ability. When God gives a task, when God gives you a task, I can promise you it will be a supernatural task greater than you can do in your own strength. Here's what I mean. There are a lot of things that people can do alone, right? Because God made us creative. God made us strong. God made us smart, right? So in our strength, just by what we've been made to be, we can do some amazing things. You look back at Genesis chapter 11. You see all of the people of the world beginning to build a tower, right? They get together. They say, we're going to build a tower. It's going to go all the way to the sky. And we will be like God. And what does God say? He says, we're going to go down there. We're going to confuse their language. We're going to stop them from doing this. Why? Because once they begin to dream, nothing will be impossible for them. Because I made them that way. A few years ago, it's been nine years ago now, I read an article about the 40th anniversary of the the Apollo moon landing. 1969. We're coming up on 50 years pretty quickly. And I remember being astounded when I read this article because some of you will remember the history. 1961, in the middle of the space race with the Soviets, President Kennedy makes a speech to Congress and he says, I think it should be our goal that by the end of the decade, we put a man on the moon. Now you need to realize nobody knew how to do that. Right? It sounds like a ridiculous goal. We are going to send somebody up to the moon. They didn't know what was even on the moon. The article said, look, they thought there might be very unusual viruses that would wipe everybody out. They thought they might land and the entire spacecraft would just sink into space dust, moon dust, and disappear. Chris Kraft, who was uh, the director of the mission at that point, he had to actually brief the president and he didn't even know what to say. And yet they got there, right? Eight years later, they got there. Hard work. Dedication, a whole lot of money, $25 billion, 400,000 people it took to get us to the moon. All right, and I read that and I think, what a testament to the ingenuity and creativity of humanity. But here's the deal. When God gives a task, it's going to be something we can't do with our ingenuity and our creativity and our strength. I want to give you just a little bit of an idea of the scope of the task that Joshua is facing. As I mentioned earlier, first of all, uh, he is following in the footsteps of Moses. First words God says here in Joshua 1 verse 2. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now Joshua would have been keenly aware of that. Just to give you an idea of Moses, Numbers chapter 12 says, Moses was the humblest man Whoever lived, right? Nobody was as humble as Moses. Here's this guy leading millions of people and he's deeply humble. The book of Deuteronomy says, nobody before Moses or after Moses was ever like Moses who talked with God face to face. Moses is this amazing leader. What has Joshua been doing? Joshua has been assisting Moses for the last 40 years, right? He has been the assistant Moses. And now God says, Joshua, you're the guy. And I don't know if you have ever had to follow in the footsteps of somebody really, really great. But it's scary. Uh, When Shandon and I lived in Dallas, I took a job early on as the worship director 
at a little church in the Dallas area. And what I didn't realize when I took the job was that I was following in the footsteps of a very beloved worship pastor who had been there for well over a decade and then he had moved away. In fact, he was so beloved that as soon as he decided to move back to Texas, they hired him again and they let me go. That's how beloved this guy was. Right? And, I, and I can remember I was uh, in my first month or two of this job and I'm trying to begin to lead. And people didn't like it. They didn't like what I was doing. They didn't like the songs I was picking. They didn't like the way things were going. There were people in the worship band who didn't like what I was doing. So they called a meeting with the pastor to talk about me. And they invited me to the meeting. So we're sitting at lunch and they're talking about me in the third person. I really don't like Matt's songs. Why, why, why can't we have what, what Mark used to do? And I remember thinking like, I'm right here. Like, talk to me. But then I realized what was going on. They were grieving the loss of a great leader, right? That's the nation of Israel right at this moment in history. You'd think there were some people going, Joshua, that guy, the one who stood outside the tent while Moses went in and talked with God, the guy who stood on the side of the mountain while Moses went up and met with God, Joshua, that's the guy that's going to lead us into this place. So Joshua is following this great leader, And God says, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cross this Jordan River and go and conquer the land that I have promised you. Now, right there, I need to pause. Cross the Jordan River, right? That sounds like something that would be easy to do until you see pictures of the Jordan River. Joshua 3 tells us actually at this point in time, this time of year, the the Jordan River was at flood stage. It was overflowing its banks. It is a steep river. There's a steep gorge on either side of the Jordan River. And at flood stage, the water was high and it would roar, right? There were no dams back then on the Jordan River like there are today. So you've got this rushing, roaring river. And God says, I want you to take all of these two million people, lead them across the Jordan River. And then Joshua, what I want you to do is go in and I want you to defeat these people, the Canaanites. And remember, it was, it was not that long ago in Joshua's life, 40 years ago, that they had stood in the same spot and Joshua had gone into this land and he looked around and he realized these people are huge, right? These Canaanites are huge. They described the Canaanites. They said, compared to the Canaanites, we're like grasshoppers. They will squish us like little bugs. And they have fortified cities and they had iron chariots. This is a God-sized task. This is not a task Joshua can do. This is not a task the people of Israel can do. There were a lot of them, but they were not warriors. Remember, they'd been slaves for a long time. He says, Joshua, you're the guy. Now, now we don't have the same task as Joshua. Our task is certainly not to conquer a land. Please don't go tear down your fence and claim your neighbor's territory. But we've got supernatural tasks given to us as the people of God, by God. Think of the last words that Jesus gave to his disciples 
before he ascended into heaven, the great commission, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, now let's break that down for a minute because much like Joshua's task, I think this is a humanly impossible task. You know why? Have you ever tried to make somebody do anything? Have you ever tried to make a disciple? Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and made them believe? Have you ever talked to somebody who needed to walk with Jesus and made them do the right thing? You go, no, I can barely make myself do the right thing. You and I can't make a single disciple. In our strength, this supernatural task is absolutely impossible. All I can do is be faithful. God controls the results. I can't make anybody do anything. Scripture also tells us we're called to reflect Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. I don't know if you have ever really tried to do this, to follow the example of Jesus who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. I don't know about you, but I've never made it very far in a perfect imitation of Jesus Christ. Because I'm sinful. And in my strength, I can't do it. So so these are our tasks that you're called to reflect Jesus with what you say, with what you think, with what you do at home, at work, in your neighborhood. You're called to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, right? And I think all too often we feel like Joshua standing at the border of that promised land and we go, "What, what in the world are you asking me to do? In fact, I would say this, if you have never felt that you are inadequate for the task that God has called you to do, if you've never had a sense that, whoa, I'm stepping beyond my comfort zone, then I would say you probably aren't boldly following Jesus Christ. If you've never had a sense, God is pushing me to share the gospel in a way that I'm not comfortable with, with people that I don't know well that I don't understand. If you've never had a sense that the task of loving my family, of knowing the scripture, of making disciples, if you've never had a sense that that is beyond your ability, if you live a life where everything is always in control, then you are not living a life of God-sized tasks because the tasks God gives are ones we can't do. Not in our strength. And so that's where Joshua stands And if that were the end of the message, this would be a depressing morning. But it's not. Go on to verse 3, chapter 1. After he gives him the task, God says this, Joshua, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Not only is this a God-sized task, bigger than his ability, but secondly, when God gives a task, he provides for the task. God's provision is sufficient for the task. In other words, God doesn't give us a job and say, good luck out there. I'll see you when you're done. 
He provides the strength. He provides the power. He provides the wisdom for the task. I don't know if you have ever had a task that you were assigned to do that you felt inadequately equipped to do. Some of you have probably assembled Ikea furniture at some point in your life. I have assembled a number of Ikea furniture items uh, for our home, for my wife's business. And if you've ever done anything Ikea, you know that they have these instruction booklets that are usually woefully inadequate for the job because there are no words, just pictures like this one. All right, the first time I began to assemble an Ikea shelf, I saw this and I thought, what does this mean? Right? The only thing I can figure out is like, if you do this with your arms behind your back, it'll break. Right? So nail your wrist to the shelf and it's going to be a lot easier. Right? I have no idea. I guess they're trying to say, hold this, but that's the essence of Ikea instructions. There are all kinds of parodies, by the way, of Ikea instructions. My favorite one I found on the internet was this one, house, right? My my favorite deal is the 7,450 little wooden dowels that it's going to take, right? And you know you're going to get into that, and there's going to be 7,448, and you will be inadequately resourced for the task. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I've got a job to do. I don't have what it takes to do it. I don't have what it requires. I'm not equipped. Okay, the good news as we look at the book of Joshua is God doesn't do that to us. When God gives us a task, he gives us what we need. I want you to see, Joshua rests on God's promises. He says, I've given you this land just as I spoke to Moses. Joshua, the promise I made to Moses is that these people will have this land. Your people will inherit this land. You know where that promise to Moses came from? It's the same promise God made to Abraham hundreds of years before. God had told Abraham, hey, Abraham, your descendants are going to go to Egypt and they will be in a land not their own in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. But you know what, Abraham? I'm going to lead them out and I'm going to give them the land. God said it to Abraham. God said it to Isaac. God said it to Jacob. God said it to Joseph and his brothers. God keeps repeating it. And here he says it to Moses and then he says it to Joshua. And he says, if I make a promise, you can bank your life on it. I told you I'd give you the land. So he rests on God's promises. He's also given God's presence. Verse five, just as I've been with Moses, I'll be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. God doesn't say, you know what? I liked Moses, but Joshua, you're B class. So I'm out of here. I will be with you every step of the way. And then what else does God give? He gives us strength. Three times in this opening section of the book of Joshua, God says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Why does God say it over and over and over again? I believe God says it repeatedly because Joshua needs to hear it repeatedly. I envision God speaking to Joshua and Joshua begins to tremble. You want me to do what? He says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. But look, you want me to, Joshua, I'm with you. I made a promise. You be strong and courageous. I believe if God gives a task, he gives the strength, 
He gives the courage. He gives the resources. One of the beautiful aspects of the New Testament for those who know Jesus Christ is this, that the strength of God and the presence of God is always with us through the power of his Holy Spirit. That is, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite verses in the book of Romans. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit that conquered sin and death lives in you, tell me what you can't do that God has asked you to do. If the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, explain again why you're too shy to share the gospel. If the spirit that lives in Jesus lives in you. Explain again why I can't trust God with my family, trust God with my money, trust God with all he has given me. Explain again why I'm inadequate. Because the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. We have all that we need. If God called you to a task, he will equip you to complete it. And so he says to us what he would say to Joshua, you be strong and courageous. You are called to the work of God in the world to be like Jesus, to make disciples. And I've equipped you for the task. And one of the most beautiful aspects here in the book of Joshua is this. Not only does God give these giant tasks, not only is his provision sufficient for the task, but then what we see here at the end is God also graciously rewards those who obey. Look at verses 7 to nine. He says, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to the law, which Moses, my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Here's what God does. He says, Joshua, I want you to take this land. Joshua, I'm gonna give you everything you need. And then Joshua, if you do it, if you just trust me and you obey, I will make you prosperous and give you success in the land. God says, I'm gonna give you everything you need and then reward you for obedience. And I I wanna be clear, God is not saying, Joshua, you'll get to go to heaven when you die if you just do enough good things, right? Even in the Old Testament, eternal life was based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus, even though they didn't know that yet. Because Jesus' death and resurrection paid for all sin, past, present, and future. Even in the Old Testament, it was on the basis of faith that they were declared righteous. As you look at Romans chapter four, Paul talks about the story of Abraham and he says this, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's what Genesis 15 said about Abraham. When God makes this promise to Abraham and it says Abraham believed him. Abraham believed in God and the God who made those promises and God credited it as righteousness to him. That's how God operates when it comes to salvation. That is, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you can be certain you have eternal life. 
If you have not believed in Jesus Christ, the call from the passage this morning, from the scripture this morning, is you can know you have eternal life if you trust in what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, right? So eternal life is always a free gift. You can't earn your way there. But as we look through the scripture, we also see that there are rewards for obedience. There are blessings for obedience. So in Joshua's day, God says, if you obey, you know what's going to happen is that the nation will get to live in the land and prosper and have peace from your enemies. Your crops will grow. As you look at the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28 through 30, before Moses died, God had the people stand on two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to call out the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And so they would call back and forth between these two mountains and say, if we obey God, God will bless us. We'll be blessed in the field. We'll be blessed when we come in. We'll be blessed when we go out. If we disobey, we'll be kicked off the land. Our enemies will run us over to remind them in a very visual, very clear way. God blesses obedience. Right, Eternal life is a free gift, but God blesses obedience. Now, when we get to the New Testament, here's what's interesting. We see this pattern, first of all, in the Old Testament, that the people didn't always obey, right? So they they get kicked off the land. They come back to the land. They're under oppression. They experience the judgment of God. So when we get to the New Testament, there's this sense that there's still a blessing to come for the people of God because that peace and that safety in the land, in the kingdom of God, was never completely fulfilled in Joshua's day. That's why the author of Hebrews says this, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. All right, what is he saying? He's saying, look, there's still a day coming when the kingdom of God will come to earth. Jesus will come back. And as you look through the scripture, it's clear that there are rewards for those who obey. Paul talks about crowns given to those who look toward the appearing of Jesus. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In Luke 19, Jesus talks about differing levels of authority to reign in the kingdom of God, that there's reward for those who obey. Eternal life is a free gift, but God graciously rewards obedience. So he gives everything we need, And he says, I'm going to reward you for obeying anyway. I want you to think about it this way. Some of you may give your kids an allowance, right? You may give them whatever it is, five bucks, 10 bucks a week, a month, whatever. You give them an allowance. The money comes from you. But you tell them, look, I would like you to use this money. I want you to save some of it. I want you to give away some of it to the church or to a missionary. And and then you can spend some of it, right? I I want you to learn how to use this money well. So you give them that money and they take the money. And they do what you asked, right? You come in here and the offering plate goes around and you see your kid put a couple bucks in there and you go, man, that's awesome that you did that. And they do it for a couple weeks and then three weeks and they develop this pattern. And here's what you say. You say, I am so proud of you. Let's go this afternoon and we'll get ice cream. I'm gonna reward you for your faithfulness. Now, what's just happened there? You gave them the money, right? It was your money. It came from you. You told them what to do with the money. What did they do? They simply took the resources you gave and trusted you and trusted God. 
And because you're a gracious parent and a loving parent who loves to give good things, you say, man, that's amazing. I'm going to reward you even though I resourced you and gave you everything you needed to do the task. That's how God is, except to an infinite degree. He says, I love you so deeply. I'm going to call you to the privilege of sharing the gospel, of making disciples, of being a light for Jesus Christ. I'm going to call you to the privilege of having an eternal impact. I'm going to give you everything you need, and then I'm going to lavish reward on you so that when you stand before Jesus Christ, you have the privilege of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of what? Of your rest forever and ever to worship me, to reign with me. And God chooses to reward out of his grace. So God gives all that we need. He gives us the task. He gives us the provision. And then he graciously rewards our obedience. We're going to close in a moment with a song. And and as the band is kind of getting ready, I I want us to uh, ask ourselves a couple of questions this morning in relation to the book of Joshua. Okay, the first question is this one. Is God calling you to a supernatural task? Remember, I said, if everything in your life is something that you feel comfortable doing, the odds are you're not living by faith, right? If everything in your life is a task that you go, hey, I got this, then you're not living by faith. So the question is, where is God pushing you? Maybe there's a person in your neighborhood or at your workplace Maybe there's some context in which you sense, you know what, God is stretching me further. Will you be faithful to take on that task? And then secondly, not only is God calling you to a supernatural task, but will will you and I trust him for strength and courage? Will we trust that God calls and God resources and God rewards? So where is it this week that God is pushing you to trust him for a task you can't do in your own strength. And will you trust him? We're gonna sing a song in a moment and then I'll close us in prayer as we have time for reflection. God, we praise you as we just sang. You are faithful that uh, you are the God who was with Abraham and made promises to Abraham that you would be with him. You are the God of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and his brothers, and of Moses and Joshua, and your people through the generations. You are the God of this church. And you're with us now. Never has there been a moment where we've been alone, and never will there be a moment when we are alone. And we need strength and courage, just like Joshua did, because we're afraid, and we're inadequate, and we're ill-equipped in our flesh to do the things that you have asked of us, and yet we, we want to. We want to share the gospel. We want to make disciples. We want to be like Jesus, but it's impossible to do in our strength. So let us trust you. Teach us to trust you and to obey. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.